Before we begin, I'd like to invite you to stay tuned after the outro music at the end of this episode to learn more about some of the generous guests interviewed and how you yourself can give more this holiday season. You're listening to episode six of Mental the Podcast. I'm Sarah Norton. I'm crunching through the snow. It's hovering just above freezing here. So, as my husband might say, shorts weather. I'm connected to a few different meal train aggregates and I'm actually taking a meal right now to a mom who just lost her baby in a miscarriage. I'm really thankful to have this chance to give back to a mom who's hurting. After I had my son, Many mom friends delivered wholesome meals to me, and some of these women I didn't even know. But they were there for me, coming to my house to drop off the work of their hands. I oftentimes cried after receiving a meal because I didn't feel as if my heart was able to give like they did. The postpartum depression cloud was laid on thick. But... Here I am now, hiking through the snowy sidewalks to meet a mom where she is at, to hopefully give her some hope and a slice of cake. If you cast your mind back to episode three, you might remember how I spoke with Kara, and one thing she said to me about how giving back to others actually helps Kara herself mentally. This episode is all about that idea. You're going to hear from four different experts, that's what I'll call them, all individuals who have in their own way given themselves over completely to their unique call in life. And by the end of the episode, I want you to come away not only served by them and what they have to offer, but also equipped to give back yourselves to others who may be in need. And I'll just cut in here and say, you'll notice I said I spoke to four different people in this episode. So you have to know, I really just took three or four prime cuts from totally golden interviews. So you'll hear some great clips of these interviews, but just know we spoke about a whole lot more. I got in touch with Kenna Malay first, a licensed marriage and family therapist, and believe it or not, a mom and woman who also lives in my neighborhood. I drove to one of her therapy offices which happens to be in a Catholic church. She greeted me warmly near the holy water font and then led me to her room, which also has the capacity to transform and double as a bridal preparation room. It was a very peaceful atmosphere in there, 
as any good therapist domain should be. I started off asking Kenna about how, well, in my own experience, it has seemed like a huge percentage of the women I know have had a struggle with postpartum depression. And I wanted to know where that's coming from or if her stats back that up. So I guess what I hear you yeah. saying is like anecdotally. It's yeah. It's like, whoa, yeah. there are so many people who are experiencing this. So the, what does the hard science say? Mm. And I think um, a couple things. One, I think you're right. It is um, a high prevalence of the population, especially if you look at, um, you know, in these childbearing years. Um, so that's already, you know, a particular piece of the pie of the population. We're talking, you know, anywhere from 10 to 25% of women um, experiencing postpartum depression or peripartum depression as it's now being called um, which is an acknowledgement the peripartum is an acknowledgement that often the symptoms begin during pregnancy and then are extending into the postpartum period Um, and in addition you know some of the literature is pointing out to us that because of the social stigma around something like postpartum depression um, it is likely that it's underreported and certainly undertreated. Mm. And so while, you know, these statistics of anywhere from like 11 to 25% are out there, it's also true that there are more who are probably suffering who we don't know. Um, and, you know, a podcast for a different day, but also is mm-hmm. fathers who are impacted yeah. by um, that period following the birth of a child um, and experiencing anxiety and depression. So um, I think there's a lot to to go in terms of research and understanding. And I'm also curious, you know, as the evolution of psychology and psychiatry continues um, and we become, um, these kinds of topics become less taboo, if we will see it move away from a, um, a mental health disorder mm-hmm. and an understanding of a, a part of the process of welcoming a child into our home. Mm. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the term of the fourth trimester. That's a really common way of talking about those first three months. Yeah. You know, after a baby is born. And so just like, you know, in the first trimester, if a woman tells you, um, oh, I've got morning sickness and I have no appetite, Mm -hmm. I'm so tired, Mm -hmm. um, I have no sex drive, um, I'm feeling gross about my body, you know, and we kind of go, oh, yeah, that's first trimester stuff, Mm -hmm. I wonder if in time we will start to hear um, a more, a normative language Mm -hmm. around some of the symptoms that we currently know as Mm -hmm. postpartum depression in those months following birth Mm -hmm. um, as as we kind of break open um, and more women speak out about how common this experience is. Um, And and just a little bit of background, you know, one of... um, one of the ways that something becomes a, a diagnosis or like a mm-hmm. mental health disorder is because it happens to um, a select number in the population. Okay. And so again, I bring up this idea that if we, we are finding that more and more women are experiencing this and the symptoms are overlapping and there's kind of this commonality, we may see it as a diagnosis move mm-hmm. away okay. and more just like, oh wow, we need to bolster the resources, offer women the support that they need, and fathers the support that they need, um, and it won't be so much um, this 
yeah, the, the taboo of a diagnosis, I guess, right. may um, may cease to exist. Wow. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. I was blown away by this insight from Kenna. And it's probably one of the insights I share most often when people ask me about the podcast. That yes, it's a diagnosis of postpartum depression, and that's how it needs to be treated right now. But that, if this experience is shown to have such prevalence among mothers, we may see a movement away from a diagnosis as a deficiency and move more towards almost an expectation that this period, the fourth trimester as she called it, is typically difficult and requires a lot of extra resources and attention. Next, I asked her, what's the technical time frame of postpartum? Yeah. Um, do you know like if it's like a year or two years or if it just like really like varies? Yeah, so that's interesting um, because I wouldn't say that there is um, a unanimous, you know, kind of blanket approach to that. In the um, in the diagnosis itself, um, its symptoms, you know, can begin during pregnancy and then present up to four weeks afterward. Um, I think I think practically what probably happens is. So you and I both had children, right? <laughs> Those four <laughs> weeks are a fog. And it's really hard to sift out um, what was, like, quote, normal and what was maybe outside of the realm mm-hmm. of what we could handle and, and, and what was, quote, normal. So I think practically what happens in therapist offices is that a woman will come in maybe even a year or two afterward mm-hmm. um, because if untreated postpartum depression can last, you know, two years. Mm-hmm. So she comes in, let's say, at 18 months, you know, after the birth of her child. But as they look at the history of the symptoms, she can identify that they were present mm-hmm. right after the birth of the child. So it's not necessarily that she has to be in and be seen in order to be given that diagnosis within four weeks. But the literature says, really, we're expecting that the symptoms have shown up, have started to increase in severity or what have you within four weeks of having the baby. Um, right. And I think most women would say that that's true. Yeah. Um, certainly there are events or you know some kind of change in the life that is a catalyst and maybe yeah. exacerbates the symptoms, yeah. but really it's it's been there um, right. for those, yeah, that month following the birth. Right, right. I thought that was really helpful, how she understands the postpartum time frame. I know for me, I thought I was doing all right after having my son, and it was just something to get through, the hard days of first having two kids in a dark Minnesota winter. But it was after my appendicitis that it all hit the fan, and talking to the doctor then, they were able to point back and recognize its onset. Next, I asked Kenna, what are the benefits of opening up to someone about what you're struggling with, specifically through counseling or therapy? I mean, I think the first, you know, regardless of the diagnosis, I would say all of my clients come in here and are just like, oh, I'm not mm. alone anymore. Mm. You know, there are many people who, even in a marriage, you know, um, 
supported in many ways, but emotionally feel very isolated and mm-hmm. alone, mm-hmm. and for a whole host of reasons, just can't share or mm-hmm. aren't at that point where they can share that with mm-hmm. anyone else. Um, so I'd say definitely one of the benefits of counseling is that someone is in it with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I speak throughout this whole hour, you know, of my own approach um, mm-hmm. to therapy, and it is one of better understanding our emotions as um, as there to give us information. Okay. Um, I think, and, you know, again, this is, this could be a whole other podcast, yeah. but, <laughs> but um, I think that oftentimes we are, we receive messages about what's okay to feel and mm-hmm. what's not okay to feel. And so perhaps if, if somehow we've got this internalized message that sadness, you mm-hmm. know, let's say, isn't okay to feel, um, we kind of stuff that away. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that sad feeling isn't being resolved. It isn't being processed. It isn't being you know, metabolized, again, to mm-hmm. use that metaphor. Um, and, it's, and it's there, and it, and it may actually grow. Mm-hmm. Um, and it may try to use um, a, quote, louder voice next time to get our attention. Mm-hmm. And to me, that means the symptoms may increase, and, um, and it may feel like, yeah, the symptoms are getting worse because that isn't being attended to. And so I think in therapy, we're looking at the symptoms um, as more of just a sign Mm -hmm. of like, okay, what is that feeling that's in there that just hasn't um, been able to be addressed for whatever reason? You know, what is it that's going on that that you haven't been able to let others in on? Mm -hmm. And how can we create an environment in here where you can look at that in a non-threatening way? in a way where you don't feel like it's going to overwhelm and swallow mm-hmm. you, mm-hmm. Um, that we can take it in bite-sized pieces and we can kind of put it away until you come back, you know, for your next session and, mm-hmm. and we can work with it again. Um, but I would for sure say that that companionship is the greatest benefit um, mm-hmm. of therapy. And then also to have someone who can normalize it for you. Yeah. Um, because, again, when you are alone, feeling isolated on an island, you're going, oh, I'm the only one who's ever done Everyone else in the world is just a good mom, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm the yeah. only one who um, is questioning whether I feel mm-hmm. bonded with my child, whether I love my child, love myself, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I would say those are the two things, companionship in it, and then that normalizing, to hear someone go, oh, you are not the first mm-hmm. or the last who will come to me with these um, kinds of concerns. Kenna spoke to you about something I've really related to, about how when you become a mother, you have all these external tasks upon which you have to focus your mind, and it can be hard to take the time to process things internally, and so sometimes emotions don't get metabolized, as she called it. You don't get to eat your emotions properly, so they're just kind of hanging off your brain's under chin. I like how she emphasized just normalizing all this though. You know, it's important to call out the specific problem. That's why we have this podcast. But in the end, this is such a common experience of moms. It's not some dark secret, or it really shouldn't be. This is normal. What you're going through is normal. Finally, I asked Kenna just a question I really wanted to ask her, as she's a mom who does work. I asked whether she thinks it might be important 
for the mental health of some moms to get out and work. So I guess at the core of it, I wouldn't necessarily say um, that it has to be something that you get paid for, even okay. like work yeah. in its traditional sense. Right. I would say that all of us need something that is life-giving, mm-hmm. that is outside of the realm of motherhood. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think about the, um, I feel like it's kind of died down now, but when scrapbooking was like new and really exciting. Yeah. So these moms were taking, you know, weekend retreats, you know, with one another to someone's cabin or, you know, um, to, you know, a, whatever, an Airbnb nowadays or yeah. whatever that was, but um, taking this time to go and, yeah, do something for their family, but really to be creative is mm-hmm. what I saw at its yeah. heart, right? Like to be creative, to use skills that maybe mm-hmm. don't get used on a regular basis, mm-hmm. Um, to, let's be honest, look at pretty things, you know, yeah. things that were aesthetically pleasing yeah. to them. Um, and so I would say that that is um, true for all of us. Mm-hmm. So whether it is, you know, training for, let's say, a 5K yeah. or finding a job that lets you use that degree that you worked really hard mm-hmm. to get, yes. but now you're a stay-at-home mom, you know, yes. primarily stay-at-home mom, and, yeah. but you still have that passion about, um, you know, let's say art or history or yeah. science whether it's volunteering, you know, um, somewhere where you can, again, have some adult conversation, some stimulating intellectual conversation. I think all that's awesome. Or if it goes so far as to be employment, you know, a regular job. Um, Yeah, I think that's necessary for all of us. I really loved my conversation with Kenna. It's so palatable, her heart. How much she gives as a wife and mother, but also as a therapist who's just a irreplaceable fixture in the community. Moving on, I skateboarded down to the west side and met up with our friend Father Andrew Brinkman, a priest and the pastor of Our Lady of Guadalupe. I think I'm older than him, but he has a wealth of experience beyond his years ministering to the people of his parish, which is largely a Hispanic community the largest in the Twin Cities. I wanted to talk to Brinkman because I knew he would have some really nuanced things to say about the spiritual health of mothers, which I think you have to keep in mind if you're really trying to look at mental health holistically. His answers were delightful. First, I asked him, what are some of the best practices spiritually for living well as a mother? He answers from a very Christian perspective. He's a priest, for God's sake. So if you're not Christian, maybe try to take what he says and see how it still might relate to your own belief system. Here's his answer. You know, I think really what's so important for for a mother is that she would, first of all, be a daughter. That she would know um, how loved she is uh, by God the Father. You know, this is this is the call for all of us uh, through baptism by being Christian. The primary vocation is to know that I'm a beloved son in the Son, and a woman's first best practice is to realize uh, how much she's loved by the Father as a daughter. She's just loved, and the Father takes great delight in her, and He wishes to bless her. I think flowing from that, that that primal, that just like that that fundamental experience for all Christians, comes her relationship as spouse first. That 
she entered into union with her husband and she she entered into a sacrament she entered into this this giving of her life because she loves him so much and she desires his good she desires his holiness that i've given my life over to this to this man so that he can become holy and so that i can help him along the way and so that he would be able to do the same for me so after being a being rooted in her identity as a daughter really it's it's being in her rooted in her identity as as a spouse as one who's uh giving and receiving in this relationship of marriage then comes the third relationship which is that of being a mother that this love that is exchanged between the spouses it overflows it, it, it takes on a new shape it takes on a new name and nine months later it takes on a whole new a dimension which is the, the the life and i think that for a mother best practices would really just be really really guarding that time of daily prayer that she's able to be with jesus and she's able to be in jesus uh not first of all as uh, a spouse not first of all as a a mother although these things are certainly crucial to who her identity is but really being in prayer with jesus uh, as a beloved daughter and so protecting that time of prayer uh you know, whatever whatever time it might be, I think early in the morning is always good, but um, maybe it's after the kids have gone to school. Guarding prayer as the heart of her life and the heart of her identity, because if she doesn't know that she's a daughter, she's going to get confused when it comes to being a spouse and a mother. I think after that, staying with my sort of explanation of first of all daughter, then spouse, then mother, really prioritizing the relationship she has with her husband um, daily daily time to pray together um, again that's that's it's it's difficult you know many people say it's difficult but but really it, it would be a pity that a husband and wife would be one on their bodies but never one in in the spiritual life you know so that they would be sharing everything else but really when it comes to their own friendship with jesus they're actually not they're actually on two di totally different places and i want to say well time out you know a husband and a wife they've got to be sharing on the level of the spiritual life uh where am i with the lord where are you with the lord i want to be with you as you walk with the lord now not everything can be shared and I, you know, I get it, but like just a general sense that we're pursuing the Lord Jesus together. So daily time of prayer with uh, her spouse and um, time weekly uh, where they can be together just as a couple to be with them, to be able to enjoy each other's company. I think the date night is really a wonderful thing, I, you know, for couples to have this weekly time where they're being together. Um, Jesus was never afraid to step away from the crowds. And this is the great temptation for all spouses. Well, actually, I need to be attentive to my children. No, you do. Yeah, you do. You totally do. And you're going to die loving them. But you first of all need to be attentive to the first relationship, which is obviously the Lord, but then the spouse. And if this place isn't right, if it's not good, if there's not love between the husband and the wife, if there's not this mutual, I want to be with you, you're going to put the mission before the, your identity. And your identity is, first of all, spouse. And so I think that it can take different ways. You know, it can manifest itself in different ways. But the weekly date, however that looks, 
I think is really good for wives. Um, lastly, you know, and when it comes to being a mother, and I don't mean to downplay the role of motherhood in any sense, but just to to put it in its proper order, is really interceding for my kids, uh, it, taking my children to prayer, being attentive to their needs and praying for those. I mean, really, the mother and the father, they're the first intercessors of their children. And uh, mothers and fathers taking time to affirm their kids, uh, being 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 um, deliberate and speaking the good into their lives. Uh, you know, I think that these words of affirmation, these can these can be really good, you know, just deliberate ways of creating a relationship and actually taking time to listen uh, to talk, tell me about your day, the mother who's attentive and etc. So as far as best practices, those things really come to me and uh, I mean we can't forget the importance of cultivating friendship that a mother she needs to be in communion with other other women and and, and other friends. It can be so easy to get wrapped up in our kids' lives. What activities they're going to, what school they're going to, what clothes they're going to wear. I love clothes. I love dressing them. But all of this is going to really mean nothing if we don't first live our identity in the proper order, which is first daughter, then spouse, then mother. That's a hard order to keep. I'm not sure what else to say about that. So, I know that was a super Catholic answer he gave, so I actually asked him, what would be one tip you have for the spiritual health of someone who maybe isn't Catholic or Christian? Yeah, I think there can be some real good uh, by unplugging. Uh, I think that that just does so much good for the mind, you know, for the just the psyche, and then also the spirit actually to, to unplug for a bit. Uh, so whether it be not not answering my phone immediately or just taking a step away from my phone. Um, and I, I would say this applies even to Christians, but, uh, if, but if not to negate the importance of being able to contemplate and just being able to have freedom in the mind to take in life. You know, mothers, they... They're, they're in such a privileged position to be able to contemplate their babies. Mm. How many women have just spent hours uh, admiring, gazing, beholding their babies uh, in, those, in those moments of their, their first year, their first years. I mean, mothers, they're just holding them. And, and like, that's just so good to be able to, to contemplate, not to do um, what is necessarily practical, uh, kind of pushing off the immediate need and looking at the deeper needs of being able to have the mind think. So I, I mentioned at the beginning the, the turning off. You know, I don't need to have the music on all the time. I don't need to be perpetually available on my phone. I, it's good for me to turn off the computer, close the television, kind of take a step away from Facebook to be able to, to, to be within myself and, and to be aware of my own needs and to be able to receive um, life, the, the beauty around me, the order around me, uh, even if I'm not, first of all, entering into prayer. We just, all of us need space to be able to think and to be able to organize our thoughts and our feelings. So any way that that can be cultivated, you know, I think is really, really good. 
Great answer, father. Finally, I asked him, what does he do when someone comes to him who is suffering with mental illness? To those who come to me with some kind of psychological suffering, the real, the real thing that I would want to help them see is how loved they are in that place. What I mean is that that place of suffering or loneliness or whatever it is can actually become a means of deeper communion with Jesus Christ. I think that, yes, we want to attend to ways that the person can can grow and heal and overcome the difficulty. That's good. And like, that's worth it. And it requires effort and some some work on the part of the person. But the great news is that God the Father, He doesn't love us because we're all in order. He loves us because we're sinners. And it's precisely where I'm most poor, where I'm hurting, where I'm struggling, where I'm not moving forward, that God the Father wants to show me how much He loves me. You know, so that's, that's, that's the great news. Now, I don't mean to just say that it's just an immediate like, Oh, great. You know, well, it still hurts, Father. I, and, and I get that. It does. But that hurt can be a means of deeper communion with um, the one who loves you. Father shared with me here, to a story about St. Therese, the little flower. He told me about how she, too, especially as a little girl, struggled with some of her own psychological neurosis but how she knew, beyond the dark clouds, my sun is still shining. Well, I kick-flipped out of the vestibule and took my board back up the hill to call my next expert, Jake Volker, another licensed marriage and family therapist. I've never met him before. I just cold-called him one day and said, can I interview you? And he just, out of the generosity of his heart, said yes, and gave me some of his prized time. He had some awesome things to say. First, I asked him a similar question to what I'd asked Angie Newman last episode. What are some of the causes of postpartum depression? I mentioned maybe it's trauma, maybe it's circumstance, maybe it's hormones. What could he say? Hormonally, that's not my area. You'd have to talk okay. to somebody else. Um, as far as like emotionally, yeah, you can definitely set yourself up for, for success. I think, first of all, learning about uh, postpartum depression as much as possible, which is, you know, thank you for your podcast. Um, so I think learning about it, uh, realizing that it's really common. I mean, what is it? I, I've seen you know, studies that show between 40 and 80% or something like that of women experience uh, PPD. Um, wow. So so by realizing that, it's it's really common. And and just because we didn't give a name to it like 50 years ago, doesn't mean that it's not a legitimate real thing, you know? So mm-hmm. I hope that women don't feel uh, shame or guilt for having postpartum depression. It's not, it doesn't mean that they did anything wrong. It just, you know, is a natural part of, of going through this huge physical, emotional uh, change uh, in a short amount of time. Um, so I think educating yourself about that, 
getting getting okay with the idea that, you know, I might not be totally hunky-dory after having a kid, uh, after having a baby, um, and I might not be uh, in tip-top shape, and I might have to call on my friends and family, and, and I might need a little extra support from my husband, uh, you know, after after the birth, and realizing that that's okay, that it's okay to be a little bit of an emotional wreck, you know, for, for a while after having, having a kid. Um, that's okay. Um, so I think getting in that frame of mind that, okay, it's not going to be perfect. I might be a wreck for a while, but that's fine. I'll get through it. No big deal. I think getting in that frame of mind is, is huge. Um, after that, knowing what steps can I take after you realize, okay, something's kind of off. What should I do? Having a game plan. Um, for example, maybe you want to look up uh, a couple therapists ahead of time just to mm. familiarize yourself with, okay, who's out there? Who deals with this stuff? Um, who do I think would be a good fit, a good connection for me and for maybe my husband? Um, so maybe getting familiar with those resources before heading into the labor uh, could be a good idea. Um, maybe talking about it with your friends and family. Hey, did you know about postpartum depression? Did you know that it's a thing? Did you know that 80% of women, up to 80%, could could suffer from this? And asking around, hey, did you suffer from from this? Um, I think uh, there's still a lot of stigma around it. So maybe starting that conversation with uh, friends and family and um, you know other moms who have been through this before, uh, ask them how, if they've uh, struggled with any, anything like this, and ask them what did they do. Um, so by talking about it, by asking questions, by getting it out there, that reduces the stigma, you know, by a lot. Um, so I, I think just connecting with friends and family on a deeper level ahead of time could, you know, significantly improve your, your chances of, uh, you know, successfully dealing with, with this. Gosh, I just loved the proactive side of his answer. I was definitely talking to a man with a plan. And I think it ties in really well with Kenna's side of the fourth trimester, as it were. You know, you can plan ahead for this. Next, I asked Jake, how do you feel about medication, antidepressants? I'm all about them. I mean, I'm for them. Um, No, I can't prescribe them. Um, uh, There's a psychiatrist that I refer to that that I, I know and trust. Um, that I refer my clients to, but I can't prescribe. Um, but I definitely think that there is a time and a place for uh, antidepressants. Um, there's, you know, there's some women in my family that are on them, been on them for years. Uh, and, you know, after trial and error, they finally found the, the prescriptions that help and that work for them. And that's great. There's, there's definitely a time and a place for them. Um, but if, if it's something like um, you're struggling with, you know, negative beliefs, low self-confidence, uh, and you know, emotional stressors, situational uh, stressors. I think that's more uh, reasons for going in and talking to somebody because that stuff can change. Um, mm-hmm. I can't always change, you know, the the chemical makeup of my brain, um, and that's when it's helpful to go, you know, talk about uh, SSRIs and other, you know, you know, medications. Um, but beyond that. I think I would rather uh, try going to therapy first. Give that a try. Try it out for try six sessions is a good round number to see if you like it, to see if you can find it helpful. Um, 
but yeah, things like low self-confidence and low self-esteem and negative beliefs about myself. Like for example, uh, I'm not good enough. I'm not lovable. I, uh, I have to please everyone. Um, I'm not safe. Uh, my body is, is hateful or my body is gross. Um, I, um, yeah, I suck. I'm not good enough. Uh, things like that. Negative beliefs. Those are best dealt with in therapy and, and, you know, can definitely be fixed. Um, there's a therapy that I use with probably 95% of my clients and it's called EMDR. Uh, it stands for rapid eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing. And Mm. it is really effective. It's like magic. It's really awesome. It's not magic, but it's really cool. Uh, (laughs) and it's really effective at, at reprocessing, uh, those negative beliefs about ourselves that we struggle with. Um, because we weren't born thinking, that I suck or I'm not good enough or, or I have to please everybody. Something happened to us along the way that made us believe that about ourselves, and I call those things trauma. Uh, so this EMDR is really good at reprocessing uh, trauma, both big and small trauma. Um, so uh, for, for things like that, um, negative beliefs, low self-confidence, I would go you know, into therapy, uh, give that a try, um, yeah. Wow. Talking to Jake, you just feel like he's your weapons expert, just setting you up ahead of time with your whole array of options. You've got medication, you've got your standard talk therapy, you've got your EMDR. You're locked and loaded and ready to go. Pretty cool because sometimes you can just feel powerless about all this, but you've got options. You can gear up you can get the gear. Finally, I asked Jake, what do you do in those situations where moms may not have the resources to afford counseling when they really need it? What is there for them? Couple of couple ideas. There are uh, free walk-in clinics, uh, usually in, in downtown urban areas um, that you can just walk into and get some counseling for free. Um, I don't know how many sessions at a time that they allow per person, um, but, but that is a resource to check out. That's worth checking out. Um, the other thing is that uh, therapists are taught in, you know, back in grad school that we are supposed to give back to the community. So uh, I do reserve a couple slots on my caseload for uh, uh, minimal fee-for-service or pro bono work. Um, so I do have a couple clients on my caseload that I see for you know half my typical rate, or or for almost you know nothing at all. Um, so you can check around and ask uh, ask therapists if they have any spots open for for uh, some pro bono work. Um, you know they could either you know write it off or just chalk it up to uh, giving back to the community and, and you know therapists want to want to do that too. Um, so I wouldn't be afraid to ask if. Uh, if they have any spaces open in their caseload for that. Wow, I thought that is wonderful. Whether or not typical health insurance covers counseling sufficiently, that's a whole other question. But that's awesome that Jake and a lot of therapists see their career as a gift and look for how they can make it a gift back to others. I think that's a real generosity of spirit. So, if you've been following along thus far this episode, we've talked to Kenna, we've talked to Father, we've talked to Jake. 
And now I want to share with you my conversation with Sister Catherine Marie of the Sisters of Life in New York City, who lives and serves at the Holy Respite of the Sacred Heart of Jesus in the heart of Manhattan. If you have ever met a Sister of Life, I bet you'd remember it. There's that saying, people may forget what you said, they may forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. That's how it is with the sisters. Their charism is to affirm the life of the other whom they meet. I knew too they provided some kind of service to pregnant women and women in the postpartum period, and so I thought, they've got to have some things they could speak into out of their experience. So I called them, and they connected me with Sister Catherine Marie once I explained that I didn't need to speak to a psychological expert. I wanted to hear from them about their on-the-ground mission, serving mothers postpartum, and to hear principles for living well as a mother. So my first question for Sister was, could you tell me about yourself and about your mission at Holy Respite? So, Sarah, I'm originally from Canada, and um, I did my degree in social work, actually, so I have an interest in just health and general, you know, care, well-being, and help of people, and um, so um, when I had a sense that I had a religious vocation, even when I was in high school, um, you know, it was kind of like, wow, you know, I I wanted to follow the Lord, but it didn't, I wasn't so convinced that that was going to be something that was joyful. I thought of it more as a sacrifice, you know, and a suffering. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I met another religious sister who all of us had the revelation like, oh, my gosh, you can be a sister and you can be happy, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> it's like that was such a turning point for me in my vocation. And mm-hmm. um, I just think of that maybe as a, you know, maybe as a parallel for some of the women that I have come to know over the years, and as people maybe find themselves pregnant for the first time, it's like mm-hmm. not something they're not expecting, and then they think of it like, oh, this is a suffering, all the things that I have to give up, you know, and mm-hmm. that they really, there are very real things in their life that are going to radically change, and mm-hmm. it can be really overwhelming to women, even who women who want to have a child, you know. And I think yeah. that's maybe the first thing that I would say. It's like the witness of being to to know, like you can be a mother and you can be happy. Like this is <laughs> the Lord desires to give us joy in our vocations and in the, in in the gifts of our life. And um, I know um, Siren Foster with Feminist for Life, she would say every woman who experiences an unplanned pregnancy needs to experience unplanned joy too. You know, mm-hmm. unexpected joy, and how true that is. And I think that our mission here at Sacred Heart, um, you know, we really desire to create a home, a space where women are able to, um, in the midst of struggles, also experience that joy of being a mother. Unplanned joy. I hope that in your own lives, you have the opportunity to experience that kind of unplanned joy. You know, you may be going through a dark time right now, you may be in the thick of things, but I really think for each of us as mothers, there's such unexpected joy to come upon us. I know I want to be open for that joy that there is planned for me. I asked Sister too, 
What are some of the ways the sisters provide a space for healing at the Holy Respite? Because I read that it's a place for healing for mothers as well. And what, what like, sort of healing is it? Um, yeah, sure. Do you yeah. do you mind if I go back to just the first question first, and then yeah, totally, the yeah. Is that okay? Yeah. So yes, yeah, definitely. maybe it will be helpful just there's because there's two main things that I think that stand out when you think of what the mission is here. You're right in naming yeah. it as a holy respite, you know. And what's yeah. respite? It's like you think of respite mm-hmm. care, you know, where. Mm-hmm. Um, a caregiver, their family members are able to be taken care of, and they can trust that they're being taken care of, and that there can be a time of rest and of peace, you know? And so as women come to stay here, we desire this house to be a place of rest and of peace. And oftentimes, you know, their world has been turned upside down, um, Mm -hmm. and everything feels like chaos. And Mm -hmm. it's like being able to step into a of a space where it's like peace, where it's okay to be pregnant, it's okay to be yourself, and that mm-hmm. uh, other people can share um, both your joys and your sorrows in this. And um, mm-hmm. it's that kind of peace that we hear about in the scripture, peace that passes all of our understanding, you know? Like mm-hmm. how is it how is it possible that there can be good things come out of, for many women feel like this is the end of my life, you know? Mm-hmm. And to have a sense of like, okay, this is a place to um to ha- have a a place to breathe and just to say okay let's um let's just take some space and take some time and see what the lord has in store and so i think that's the first part that i would talk about that yeah. holy respite and the second yeah. um thing that i think is so important in that is um just the reality that as women um, you know, we'll read this in Muliaris, uh, in John Paul II's Muliaris Dignitatum. Women need to receive love in order to give love. And so here mm-hmm. at Sacred Heart, the sisters, our real mission is to really love and take care of the moms who come and live here, the women who come and live here. And they mm-hmm. don't need our help taking care of their child. You know, they're they're mm-hmm. amazing mothers, and I'm edified every time just seeing their goodness and how beautifully they take care of their children but they need people to love them the ones who Mm -hmm. they were counting on you know the the fathers of their child their own families for whatever reason they're not they're enabled to love them right now and so Mm -hmm. the sisters we have the privilege of them being their sisters in that you know to be the ones who love them so they can pour that love out onto their children you know Mm -hmm. and it's just being able to um yeah, to delight in them and reflect back to them their goodness so that they can they can do the same for their children. And ultimately, I think wow. these things are, you know, I think they're gifts of Christ. Um, mm. It's like peace that only Christ can give. It's love that only God can give. And mm. please let, let us be instruments of that, you know. And yeah. uh, you can only give Christ when you've received, you know, it's like you have to have Christ. And so it's like right. the sisters, you know, we spend time in prayer every day saying, Lord, love mm-hmm. me. <laughs> I need to yeah. be loved so I can yeah. pour it out, you know. And um, and then and then we can uh, speak authentically to the women of the same thing. I think even if you are Christian, I want you to step back and think about what she posited. That in order to love we need to first be loved. That's a pretty radical thesis. If it's true, then we have to get in front of the God who loves us so that we can better love our spouses and children. 
I asked her next, what do the sisters do when they recognize a mother may be struggling with mental illness? Sure. No, I mean, you, yeah. and I think you were, Sarah, asking specifically, you know, about postpartum and just the question that, yeah. you know, that's a special interest that you have. And so, yeah, I think that that's very important also. And um, just mm-hmm. to affirm, like, that's very real. Many women experience postpartum and it, it's mm-hmm. often on a spectrum, as you would know, but to, mm-hmm. to know that that's, that's, um, a common experience of women and it doesn't point to a deficiency in a person it's kind of something to be attentive to because it's very real and it can um it can really affect a woman right at, uh, you know is right when she's hoping that this is going to be a really happy time in her life it's mm-hmm. like wow where did this come from you know mm-hmm. and to have hope too like when it's attended to it can be treated and there's uh, very good helps for that and so um, just to just to be a word of encouragement to women who may have experienced or may have suffered postpartum, it's very real. And um, mm-hmm. I think here in the house, you know, I think mm-hmm. um, we would have an eye, just being attentive ourselves yeah. as sisters, like after somebody yeah. has a child, to help encourage them to come downstairs to be part of the community life here. And just if we mm-hmm. have a sense of somebody being more isolated or more tears, then we would be, like, mm-hmm. wanting to just give special care and special attention there, you know? Um, yeah. I think often what I have done is just encourage self-assessment to start, you know? Like, so mm-hmm. for a woman to kind of to be able to share with her some things that might be indicators of postpartum so she can look, you know, like, wow, do I see that in myself and what would be helpful with that? Um, I think I've used the Mayo Clinic as a resource, you know, just for um, Mm -hmm. description of what, you know, what postpartum looks like. And they had a Mm -hmm. very helpful, um, like, what do you call that? It was very helpful, again, in naming the spectrum. And they they started off what they would call baby blues, which many, many women experience just in the hormonal change after after pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And that might last for a few Mm -hmm. days or be periodic. And then postpartum is something that's more extended and harder mm-hmm. to um, to get out of, and it um, can be debilitating, um, but mm-hmm. also can be responded to. And then there will be mm-hmm. something more on the serious end of the spectrum where it would become more like a postpartum psychosis, and then mm-hmm. that would need a much more um, intensive care. Um, but mm-hmm. just to know that there, this is a spectrum and that many women experience it, and yeah. um, just to acknowledge that it's real um, yeah. and to be able to notice what these signs of it and then to be able to seek yeah. help early, you know, yeah. as opposed to yeah. let it um, drag on for a long time. And yeah. um, so th- those are just some of the things I've experienced in the house. And, again, we don't yeah. do counseling ourselves as sisters, right. but then we would be encouraging to work with a hospital social worker, to work with a postpartum doula, um, to mm-hmm. work with a counselor that they're already seeing, you know? Finally, I asked Sister, what words of encouragement would she have for mothers? The first thought that comes to me is um, is the expression, just delight in your child. And mm-hmm. um, it's just, the, it's like that experience of just being able to, to um, look and wonder and, um, take joy in that little person who's there and mm-hmm. it's like just to to marvel at who this is and um, I think that it's like as our hearts 
as we just open our hearts to to the the delighting and taking joy in this little person, mm-hmm. um, it's then it makes the work the work all the the feeding and the cleaning and the in the the um, uh, late nights and all those things. It's like it's for a person. It's because I love mm-hmm. this little person, you know. And mm-hmm. so then all those tasks that can be demanding. It's like it's for a person who I love, who delights my heart. And mm-hmm. I think I would say the other thing that comes to me is just to be, to to give yourself permission to let go of perfection. And so mm. it's like it's like maternity is one of those places where women often feel super inadequate. Like um, mm. you know they have a great desire to mother and to love, and it's written right into their hearts. And yet they feel like I'm doing everything wrong, and this is like totally new, and I I'm not doing it right, you know. And mm. just how important it is to know that it's like it's you loving and delighting in your child, and it's like to let go of that fear of not being perfect, and to really just say I just I'm just gonna love, and mm. um, that. Those things, all those practical things that you don't feel you know how to do, those can be learned. And just watching mm-hmm. our guests here at the house, you know, we'll have women who live here and they're six months pregnant and they're like, I can't imagine having a child. Like, I'm so not ready. This is so not my mm-hmm. land for life. Mm-hmm. And, like, I just didn't have anybody in my life who I can look to as a good mother. Like, I just feel really, I don't know, I don't have a clue about what I'm going to do, you know? And then mm-hmm. through just the love and the encouragement of the sisters, of the other women in the house, it's like then they're the ones who are, you know, three or four months later when the next new person comes, saying, you're like, mm-hmm. oh, let me, sh- I thought that too. Let me show you how to do this. Oh, don't worry, it's going to be okay. I thought that too, you know. And just the encouragement <laughs> that women give to each other and um, and naturally passing on wisdom um, mm-hmm. the wisdom of maternity, you know, and how, oh, it's so, you know, women need that to encourage each other in that. Well, Merry Christmas. It's the season of giving and of hope, of encouragement. God knows you're giving so much this season as you prepare gifts for family and friends. You reach out with meals and treats for others. And perhaps you're making a gift to your parish or to a charitable organization. If you still need to make a gift or want to make an extra gift, I want to encourage you again, stick around to the very end. I want to share with you some of the ways you can help the mothers at Holy Respite and support the mission of those sisters. But before all this, I just want to say to you, mothers, You are a gift to your spouse, to your children, to the world. You are a gift, and you're making such a gift of yourself. And to others, thank you for the gift you make of yourself to the women and mothers in your life. God bless you.
Hi, Andy here. If you want to help out the Sisters of Life, send diapers, size 4 to 6, various newborn clothing and gear, and prayers to Sacred Heart of Jesus Convent at 450 West 51st Street, New York, New York, 10019. If you want to learn more about Jake Volker, go to www.jakevolker.com. That's Jake, J-A-K-E, Volker, V-O-E-L-K-E-R.com. Also, you can check out EMDR, which he mentioned, at emdr.com. If you want to help out Kenna, I think just pray for her and give her your gratitude. She's an amazing woman. She also suggested to us the Pregnancy and Postpartum Anxiety Workbook on Amazon. We suggest you go out and buy it. And for Father Brinkman, all he likes is coffee. So maybe get that if you know him. God bless you. Merry Christmas. I'll have a blue, blue Christmas.